Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 101. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you, if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media on Facebook. You can like me there, at Brian McClanahan. You can follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Also, if you want to get a free ebook and free audiobook of Forgotten Founders, just head to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Give me an email address, and I will give you both of those things. Uh, also, you get a couple emails a week from me. And if you do like this podcast and you want to help support it, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and you can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the podcast going, the lights on, uh, and any little bit is appreciated. Also, don't forget that uh, the uh, giveaways for my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America are going to end September 18th, so you got just a little over a month left. Uh, going out to blamehamilton.com, follow all the different procedures for that, and you can get a, a an ebook, the Jeffersonian Solution, or an ebook and a six lecture course on Alexander Hamilton, if you just uh, pre-order one or two or more books, and all the details are there. Plus, you get registered for a drawing for a master level membership to libertyclassroom.com. Anyone who pre-orders one or more books is thrown into the drawing. So, going out there and do that because on September 18th. All of that will end. So you want to get involved in that. Okay. Uh, now, today's uh, episode is going to focus on an article that uh, was published at thefederalist.com. And I don't usually read this website because it's just, most of the time, standard uh, neoconservative nothingness. But uh, I did want to address this article because it was sent to me about 35 different times whether it's email, social media, did you see this, did you see this? So uh, I will be uh, writing a piece for this, but I want to do a podcast on it because I can get into more detail on some things that um, I don't want to, you know, usually uh, when I write a response, it's not going to be uh, several thousand words. So in a podcast, I can get more in in a 30-minute window. So the title, it was written by, um, let's see, a, a man named Davidson, John, John Daniel Davidson. And uh, he's a journalist. And this is the title. The Confederacy Still Lingers Within the Progressivism That Birthed It. And so <clears throat> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discuss several different parts of this article where he gets some things majorly wrong. Uh, and 
it's indicative of the neoconservatives. They don't. They all know they hate the Confederacy, but um, they can't figure out why. Uh, it, it's almost schizophrenic. On one hand, they hate the Confederacy because people like Victor Davis Hanson, a neoconservative, because it was too decentralized and the state's rights that they had. And of course, this leads to sanctuary cities and all the leftist uh, attacks on the uh, Republican-controlled uh, government. So we don't like it because of that. You know, California secession is to be opposed because it's just neo-Confederate nonsense. Uh, these people don't like the Confederacy because it's too decentralized. And then you've got this neoconservative, Davidson, who doesn't like the Confederacy because apparently it's too centralized and because people like John C. Calhoun were progressives. Now, uh, I'll get into that. And this, this interesting view of John C. Calhoun, which is so far off base, I, I don't even know where to begin. But uh, he starts the article... Uh, discussing these new shows that are going to come out uh, where HBO has a series um, and Amazon has a series that are going to look at the, if what if the Confederacy won the war? Uh, and of course, both are going to be about uh, the Confederacy still being a slaveholding republic long after uh, in the modern age, you know, 150 years later, it's still a slaveholding republic. Uh, and Davison believes that had the Confederacy won the war, he, he sides with um, a, a Civil War historian. I'm not even going to mention who it is, but this particular guy wrote for USA Today. Again, just let's think about my last podcast, Popular History. Here is this historian uh, writing for USA Today. This is how people get their history. So think about popular history. He wrote this. Quote, the Confederate government centralized political authority in ways that made a hash of states' rights, nationalized industries in ways historians have compared to state socialism, and imposed the first compulsory national draft in American history. If Benoff and Weiss are successful in creating an alternative world in Confederate, it will shock us fully as much as Game of Thrones has, not for how much of the Confederate future we avoided, but how little. So essentially what this historian is saying is that the modern central state was created by the Confederacy. And he, this, this historian also points out George Fitzhugh, whose famous or infamous treaty, Cannibals All, and also uh, Sociology for the South, talked about the difference in labor systems and how uh, one of the benefits of the slave labor system was that it provided cradle-to-grave care for their workers. It was a paternalistic institution. And so he's citing this as this idea that, you know, employers should give these type of benefits to their workers. Because this wasn't provided by the state now. This was provided by the employer, so to speak, that this would be a bad idea. Now, I'm not saying that uh, Fitzhugh was uh, right in his characterization of slavery. Don't get me wrong. But... This idea of paternalism did filter out into the modern capitalist state. If you look at companies like Google or companies that have a paternalistic structure to their employee-employer relationship, it's that type of system. Provide excellent benefits, provide not cradle-to-grade because, of course, you, you don't get this unless you're an employee of the company. It's free will, so there's, there's a drastic difference there. But you do get medical care and all these other things, maternity leave and, and vacations and all that kind of stuff. So and, and, of course, great uh, retirements and benefit packages. 
in in the South after the war was over, when you look at their the way they uh, adapted their industrialization to their views on labor, uh, you had entire communities set up where people got you know plots of land to garden and people were given houses and uh, you know the the labor structure was different when you when you went to work. Uh, you might have had a, a large cafeteria where you could get anything you wanted to eat. So uh, the idea that, that he's getting into here, and that's a whole other episode on labor relations and other things, but is that you know the welfare state essentially was created by the Confederacy. The whole idea of welfare was a Confederate invention, a Southern invention. Um, and that the centralized state, of course, came out of the Confederate experience. Now, it's true that the Confederacy did centralized a tremendous amount of authority during the war, and that they did not only institute a draft, but also suspend habeas corpus. But you have to understand that the states, first of all, I did an episode on the Confederate Constitution just two episodes ago. You have to understand the states in that particular structure resisted, in many cases, successfully against uh, this centralization. For example, there was no Supreme Court actually established during the war, the state courts handled everything, and the state courts nullified the suspension of habeas corpus. They started issuing uh, writs of habeas corpus in complete defiance of the central government. The states resisted the draft. They just didn't provide the, the manpower to enforce it. So when he says they made a hash of states' rights, they didn't. The central authority was trying to fight a war. And as uh, it has to be pointed out, wars are usually the most disastrous when it comes to civil liberties. And it was no different in the South. However, the press stayed free in the South where it did not in the North. Uh, opposition papers were often shut down in the North. People were arrested and thrown in prison simply for resisting or at least speaking against the Lincoln administration. You didn't have as much of that in the South. You had some suppression of civil liberties, and people did complain about this. But the state still had complete control over these things, oftentimes, even if the central authority was trying to make it so where they didn't. The governor of Georgia uh, was famous for resisting the Confederate government. And you had uh, Richmond newspapers that continually sniped at Jefferson Davis and the Central Authority. The vice president of the Confederacy sniped at Jefferson Davis and Central Authority. So when he says they made a hash of states' rights and, and uh, nationalized industries, yes, they were trying to fight a war, and they had very little industry to begin with, and so they were trying to ensure that the industries they did have could actually maintain some type of military output. They conscripted people into doing things for the government. This is all true. But when you look at the structure of the Confederacy, it was no way, it was in no way conducive to the modern progressive state. Now, the Union, on the other hand, did establish these type of things because Reconstruction began in earnest in 1862, and the state capitalism, the state capitalist system that we have today, what we often call crony capitalism, was established really beginning in 1862 and carried forward. The Lincoln administration did centralize power and did allow for the growth of the executive branch in ways that would never slow down. When you look at modern presidents and modern executive power, you can point directly back to Lincoln. Now, of course, Lincoln did have 
a couple of antecedents in Andrew Jackson and George Washington that he could point to and say, well, I mean, they were doing this too, and this is true. And this is why I said that both those people also screwed up America. But uh, the Lincoln administration and the United States government was centralizing power in a way that we would never turn back from. The states were essentially emasculated during uh, that war. If the South had won, I think you would have seen the states because they stood up to the Confederate government, you would have seen the states have much more power in a post-war South, independent South, than they had during the war. So this is a this is a stretch to say that centralized authority would have been maintained. I don't think it would have. There was too much dissension. You didn't have as much of that in the North. You had people trying to resist, and you did have some states that were uh, that were hostile to the Lincoln administration, but not effectively, not like they were in the South. So, and then Davison continues, if that sounds crazy to you. It's because the dominant narratives about the Civil War in the South are by now so familiar, even if they're largely wrong. Well, this is actually wrong, what I just said, this quote from this Civil War, quote, historian. Adding to the confusion in the, is the mainstream media's penchant for portraying Republican voters in the South as a bunch of Confederate flag-waving racists, while casting progressive Democrats as defenders of equality and sincere advocates for social justice. Now he's getting into the stupidity of the modern neoconservative group, which is Republicans uh, are, are, have always been the good guys and Democrats have always been the bad guys. Uh, that is neoconservative, that's stupid neoconservatism. Okay. But, and I already did a podcast on the flip, All right, so I've talked about that. So then he gets into a subtitle, John C. Calhoun sowed modern progressivism. He continues, Davison continues, the truth is more complicated and more uncomfortable for progressives should they choose to face it. And no, I'm not talking about the facile argument that the Civil War was really about states' rights. The war mo- was most certainly about slavery. So much so, in fact, that decades before the war, uh, let me change page here, decades before the war came, Southern leaders were thinking about how to pres- best preserve slavery in a country that was expanding westward. Chief among them was John C. Calhoun, who could see as early as 1846 that unless more slave states were added to the nation, a growing number of new free states would eventually make it impossible for southern states to veto anti-slavery legislation in the Senate, as they repeatedly had done to the Wilmot Proviso in the late 1840s. Eventually, free states would have had a three-fourths majority to abolish slavery by amending the Constitution without the consent of any southern states. Calhoun considered this the tyranny of the majority and developed a novel political theory that would preserve the minority rights of the slave states, the doctrine of the concurrent majority. So, then he continues, simply stated, The doctrine maintained that within the framework of of American constitutionalism, certain minority groups, like slave states, had the right to veto decisions of the majority which would only act with acquiescence of the minority. Hence, these minorities also had the right to secede from the Union. Secession was merely a form of veto. Now, I'm going to talk about Calhoun's disquisition on government because um, uh, that is uh, what he's talking about here. And um, 
I, I need to finish reading the rest of this because he, he makes so many more mistakes. But um, he gets the concurrent majority uh, entirely wrong. So I'm going to talk about that. But let me continue with what Davison is saying. The late political philosopher Harry Jaffa. Now this is really the problem with this. Harry Jaffa is a moron. The Straussians and Jaffaites are all neoconservatives, and they get the entire fabric of American history wrong. Wrote that Calhoun's theory was the antithesis of the founders and Abraham Lincoln's understanding of the Constitution. Well, that's just Jaffa's completely wrong there. Bradford has already taken Jaffa apart to a point where Jaffa has nothing left and left them but pieces. Which held that states could only secede for just causes. They could alter or abolish a tyrannical government essentially by making the same case the Declaration of Independence made. Secession on any other basis could only lead to anarchy. <gasps> the entire purpose of Calhoun's doctrine was to undermine the philosophical foundations of the Constitution and replace them with a theory supposedly derived from science, albeit the junk pseudoscience of racial inequality and Darwinism. Calhoun believed he was correcting a fundamental error of the Founding Fathers. He rejected not just the principle that all men are created equal, but also that the idea of political communities are rational and voluntary. Calhoun had a Darwinian view of human nature and society. He believed in Jaffa's words, so obviously Davidson is getting his entire understanding from Calhoun from Jaffa, that, quote, constitutions are the result of mindless struggles in which chance adaptation to the constitutional forms results in the benefits which causes the form to be perpetuated. Rather than base government on the tenets of natural law, liberty, equality, consent of the governed as the founders did, Calhoun thought government should be based on scientific principles. His aim was nothing less than to redefine the basis of the American constitutional order. Unlike Lincoln and the founders, he didn't think it was possible for a majority to respect and preserve the rights of minority because he rejected the idea that political justice arises from human reason and forming human will. He believed politics was sheer will. Calhoun's political theory anticipates in nearly every important respect the science of the 20th century behavioralism, writes Jaffa, who notes that in many ways Calhoun's scientific political thought was a precursor to Marxism, which also rejects the philosophical foundations of American constitutionalism. Okay, so let me attack all that stuff because there's a lot to get to here. First of all, this idea that Calhoun was the Marx of the master class, is not, that's not Jaffa's position. That's actually Richard Hofstetter's position, who wrote that in the late 1940s. Uh, and he uh, talked about how Cal Calhoun's political philosophy was a, a real brilliant political philosophy. And in so many ways, he was defining and, and conceptualizing a philosophy. He was, a, he was the last American statesman philosopher, and he was um, <clears throat> important in that regard because he outlined a philosophy that worked for the quote-unquote master class of the South. And again, Hofstetter is completely wrong here, because all Calhoun was doing in so many ways was correcting what he thought was an error in the founding generation, but it was an error because they did not provide a mechanism to enforce their understanding of what the Constitution was designed to do, and that was to limit the powers of the central government. You see, what, what Davidson is doing by tearing down Calhoun is tearing down the founding generation. He thinks he's not because he's, he's advocating some kind of link. This is Jaffa, the idea that a proposition nation exists where the declaration, the only important line is all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That's the only line that really matters. 
The rest of it doesn't matter. The rest of the declaration where Jefferson outlines that uh, the it was a union of states, independent states, uh, and each state as a free and independent state, had right to do all the things that free and independent states could do, which was establish justice, uh, I'm sorry, um, establish uh, foreign relations, declare war, do all those things, right? Trade, all those things that um, independent states may of right do. So Jaffa and the Straussians, and of course Davison, who is, he writes for the Claremont Review, so he's a Straussian. Uh, and if you don't know all these things, it's important to know it because the neoconservatives really are not the they they are not conservative at all. They're they are liberals masquerading as conservatives. They are leftists masquerading as conservatives. It used to be that conservatives respected John C. Calhoun, Russell Kirk, who's often considered to be the dean of you know modern conservative thought, loved John C. Calhoun. And John Randolph of Roanoke, by the way, who was the one who came up with the idea of king numbers being problematic. This is not Calhoun's idea. There is people, conservatives before this were mentioning, you know, if you have uh, a, a, a problem with numbers, you're just replacing one king with another. And this was discussing the French Revolution and, of course, moving forward. But let's, let's get into what Calhoun actually said in the Disquisition on Government, because Obviously, Davidson has never read it. It's very clear. He's read what Jaffa said about the Disquisition on Government, but he's never actually read the Disquisition. And it's not long. It's only about 60 pages. Uh, and uh, a good third of it is Calhoun's proof that this concurrent majority has actually been used throughout time and is very effective. And what he's trying to do, remember, is he's trying to insist that there is a way, a mechanism that has to be devised that would work to strengthen the founders' conception of what the Union, the Constitutional Union, was supposed to do, this federal republic. As he said when he wrote his, his uh, work on the Constitution, it is a democratic federal republic. That's what he called the United States, a democratic federal republic, meaning a union of states, which was the founders' conception of the Union. It's very clear. Uh, it's very clear if you look at uh, the way that the founding generation viewed the Union. It's very clear that that was the case. The way they, they argued for the ratification of the Constitution. Okay, so let's get into this. First and foremost, was Calhoun against popular government? Absolutely not. In fact, in the Disquisition itself, he makes a point that if you allow the concurrent majority, then it would increase suffrage. It would, in, it would increase the ability of people to enlarge suffrage because you would have homogenous communities and poor, rich and poor alike would have the same interests in the same community because he's looking at culture. He's looking at culture for the basis of why people vote. He, and he talks about there, there's individuals and then there's, there's community and uh, there's, uh, there's different motivations for people to vote. And he mentions in a majoritarian system where you don't have any check, even, a even when you have a constitution that has a written constitution that's there to restrict the powers of the general government, which he says that's what a written constitution is there to do. When you have a majoritarian system, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to create two factions, and each faction is always going to be trying to get the spoils. 
And this is exactly what's happened in American society. It is the tyranny of the majority, the 50 plus 1 percent. And we're seeing this now. The Trumpers, the, the Republicans, have now controlled the government. And theoretically, this would allow them to do whatever they wanted. In fact, they could. The Republican Party, if it wanted to, could pass whatever legislation it wanted, and there's nothing the Democrats, the other side, could do about it. And, and when Barack Obama was president and he, the Democrats controlled the House, they could pass in the Senate, they could pass whatever they wanted, and there was really nothing the Republicans could do about it. That is majoritarian government. And this is why people get so angry. And this is exactly what I've, I've done a podcast. Why are Americans angry? Because of majoritarian government. Because of one-size-fits-all policies. What Calhoun is trying to do is say, we need a different path. There needs to be a veto, a veto over this type of system. You would have regional government. And he called it the concurrent majority because he said what this would do is actually increase good people to want to be in government because all issues would have to be for the good of the whole, not just one section or group of people. So if you look at the left's critique of, say, the mainstream Republicans, well, they're just out there for corporate and business interests. So they could veto those type of things. Or when the left is in power, they could say, well, all they're out there for, to do is to harm uh, the middle class by increasing taxes, by doing things that are going to harm. So we could veto those things. And therefore, the only policies the government would actually have would be those that would benefit all. Benefit all and burden all equally for the good of the union. Essentially, this is putting the Tenth Amendment into effect. You are restricting the powers of the government to those that are defined in the document itself through the current concurrent majority. That's what you're doing. You're not just saying, well, some minority group can just veto the will of the majority. Isn't that awful? Is it? Is it awful if one group is being excessively harmed by legislation to say that this is an awful thing to do? Or one section is being excessively harmed by legislation that's not good for them? It's only good for one section or one group of people over another? This is where majoritarian this is where Calhoun was against majoritarian government. Because it would inevitably lead to a to a structure where the defined powers of the government would be abridged. And he and where where Jaffa says Calhoun's position would lead to anarchy. In fact, Calhoun talks about anarchy in the disquisition. He says, what I'm trying to do is avoid anarchy. It's not anarchy. He brings up anarchy several times. And he says, my, my position, my solution to this problem, to place a mechanism in our political fabric that could enforce the limited nature of the Constitution would lead to more peace and harmony than it would to anarchy. Secession is not anarchy. This is Jaffa's position. This is the neoconservative Straussian position like Victor Davis Hanson. Secession is anarchy. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, nullification is lawlessness. It's not. It's not lawlessness at all. In fact, the, uh, the, the Canadian Constitution, which was authored in many ways by a Southerner, Judah P. Benjamin, allows for secession and nullification of certain issues. And there's no anarchy in Canada. Canada has a very stable political system. In fact, maybe even more stable than the United States. Because it allows for these type of things, if they choose to do so. so this is Calhoun's, 
they have essentially a concurrent majority system when it comes to certain they can they can nullify and then bring it back to a vote. So this is Calhoun's system in place and it works. So these idiots like Davidson have no clue what they're talking about when they start bashing Calhoun. Now Calhoun was against this principle of all men are created equal because he said it's a it's a truism that this this isn't this isn't this is a false position. Just look around. Now he did agree that all men would be equal in a state of nature when there was I mean there was nothing that you had to worry about except survival and of course all men are equal but he said that state of nature never really existed because people are political animals and they've existed in communities and so this just simply won't be the case. So you have a complex social system and uh, in that you don't have equal people. You have people that have natural talents and people that don't. And liberty, he talks a lot about liberty in the Disquisition and, and how liberty is actually gained. And uh, a lot of libertarians wouldn't like Calhoun's position, but he does say government is essential for liberty because liberty keeps you free from invasion from without, but it also, the idea is to allow you to have the freest possible expression to do anything you want to do to gain and maintain a living, to achieve success, in other words. So government should not retard that at all, but it should also keep people from invading you. That's the point of government. But he talks a lot about liberty, and his position on equality is nothing different than every conservative had ever said until the neoconservative ascendancy of the 1970s and 80s. Uh, Russell Kirk talked about liber uh, talked about equality in this way. Uh, you know, so uh, you can take your pick of any conservative thinker before the 1970s and 80s, and you would find, that's because the neoconservatives came to power at that point, you would find that everyone railed against this idea of equality with a capital E, equality of condition. This is what Calhoun said. You know, if you do that, if you have, he actually wrote about this in the Disquisition. If you do that, if you level society, you create an, in, an unequal society. You're, you're retarding the progress of society by doing this. You can't have a progressive society. So he does use that term progressive. So Davison is right that in some way, some ways Calhoun was a progressive because he's looking at the betterment of society. And how do you do that? Well, you make government as limited as possible and you allow people to be as free with as much liberty as they can. Those, of course, who have the talent to do so should be able to achieve as much as they can in this society. Calhoun's not basing this on pseudoscience of racial inequality. He, he didn't even mention race in the Disquisition at all. He never mentioned it one time. In fact, he talks a lot about different Europeans in the last half of the book, uh, last half of the disc, the last third, I should say, of the Disquisition. He talks a lot about European governments, and he mentions that the British and American systems have been, produced the most freedom in the history of the world. He does say that he doesn't believe that everyone is, is uh, capable of liberty, but he doesn't make any claim on race. He just makes a claim on different people in society. So, again, Davidson is getting his understanding of Calhoun from Jaffa, which is a major problem, because I just don't think he ever read the Disquisition. The, the Disquisition is, is studied all over the world, 
all over the world by people who want to have a better understanding of the American political tradition, of what we could do to help enforce the Tenth Amendment. Calhoun did believe in nullification. He did believe in secession. He called it a veto. He called it a negative. There has to be some negative on the central authority or you really don't have a limited government. There has to be something there that can negate the central authority. The central authority is not going to do it itself. It never will. And I think Calhoun was was, had, was living through a time where it proved that. And of course, even to this day, the central authority doesn't ever place a negative on itself. We can have battles in Congress and may not get some legislation through or this and that. But in reality, if the, if the Republican Party wanted to do anything, it would. And there's nothing that anyone can do to stop it unless the states or some type of negative was there to protect the states. I mean, this works for the left. It works for the right. A mechanism in place to arrest unconstitutional government. That was Calhoun's position, and he said it would strengthen the union, not weaken it, because you would have a real union that benefits and burdens all people in all sections equally. You would not have sectional legislation. You would not have numerical legislation, meaning just the tyranny of the majority. You wouldn't have that, and that's a good thing. This is why I don't. I mean, this is where Davison isn't really a conservative. This is a good thing. And we should not listen to these neoconservatives. They are dangerous. Because at the end of the day, all they believe about all they believe in is essentially central power. Central power. They can talk about we're we're all for decentralization, we're all for uh, limited government. Well, how are you gonna do it if there's no negative anywhere? You can't. It's ridiculous. And when the Democrats are in power, you'll start moaning, we want decentralization. We want negative on these bad laws the government's passing. Well, then the left should have the capability of doing that as well, which would produce peace and harmony among the union. Because then these issues would not even be brought up. If there was a possible way, this is Calhoun's position, if there was a possible way that if the left was in power and somehow they brought up nationalized medicine and one section could veto it well then it would never be brought up in, in the general government it wouldn't even come up for a vote because that's going to only help a, a portion of the population of the population not all if there was uh, a corporate welfare uh, uh, legislation that was brought up that would only help corporations it's going to be vetoed so the only thing you would have would be needful legislation to defend the united states that's it from invasion, and you would have you would have a much freer economic society. That's Calhoun's point in the disquisition. I highly recommend you going out and reading it yourself. Don't get your history from idiots like John Daniel Davidson, who doesn't know anything he's talking about. Again, he's never read Calhoun. I can tell just by reading this. He's read Jaffa's interpretation of Calhoun, and that's what he believes. Don't read Jaffa either. He's he's not worth your time. Uh, if you want to read the Disquisition, you can find it online. Uh, I read mine in uh, Clyde Wilson's The Essential Calhoun, which also includes several other little nuggets that are just wonderful. Uh, when you look at what Calhoun said about a variety of things, it's it's a collection of quotations. And you and look, there's no more, there's no greater scholar on John C. Calhoun in the United States than Clyde Wilson. He edited Calhoun's papers. So if you want to know what Calhoun thought about things, you just go to Clyde. Uh, you, you don't go to anyone else. You don't go to Harry Jaffa, uh, for example, and you don't go to John Daniel Davidson. Uh, you can also, uh, Lee Cheek wrote a, uh, edited a, a great collection of uh, Calhoun's um, 
works. Uh, but you can find there's several different. Uh, Liberty Fund had a great collection of, of uh, Calhoun's uh, works. So there's lots of different places you can find the Disquisition. But go out and read it yourself and don't rely on uh, this type of material. And this is, again, why popular history is so important. People are going to read this and think, oh, yeah, well, I'm a Jaffaite. Now, I'm a Jaffa, and I, I, I disagree with Calhoun. We need to fight back on this stuff through popular history. This podcast, write stuff about it, do things, make people aware of John C. Calhoun. And I've also done a podcast on John C. Calhoun. Can't remember what episode it was, but it wasn't long ago on Calhoun and why Calhoun is one of the greatest Americans in American history. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this uh, this takedown of uh, the neoconservatives and uh, this attack on Calhoun. And I'll see you next time on the Brian Kilmeade Show.